Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8, entitled, You Are My God. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Since your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I lift up my hands. My soul is satisfied as with fat and oil. So my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you through the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Thank you, Gail. Well, I'm glad that we are all very definitely aware that uh, Thursday, the word um, for Thursday, the T was not for Turkey, but for Thanksgiving. And um, I have a pretty substantial word of Thanksgiving. Um, if you were on Monday night at the seminary, uh, at the presentation with uh, Dr. Garber, you may have heard me say that I never thought I would live to see the day when I would be sitting next to an Orthodox Jewish scholar and uh, sharing the platform. Um, and even more so, that I would be privileged to spend two and a half hours with him uh, at a very long and very pleasant lunch where we talked heart to heart um, no walls between us, and he asked some probing questions to which I gave straight answers, and likewise, and um, the fact that he was able to to come and share, and I don't know if you all of you were able to see, but um, Dr. Garber felt, felt so much at ease with us that he got up from his, stair, from his chair and decided to preach. <laughs> and you know, you can tell an awful lot of, about a person how they feel uh, by their appearance, and sometimes you connect with folks or try to connect with folks and they sit there crossing their arms and you say, okay, Lord have mercy. Um, none of that was there. In fact, he rattled uh, through what he needed to say and peppered his presentation uh, with Hebrew, with Yiddish, and it was all part of a, a goulash of his thoughts and ideas. And uh, so this is a commercial 
by the way, for Wednesday night. Uh, love to invite to see all of you come who were there and who were not able to come. And uh, we'll have a debrief session about what actually took place there. Uh, because I know that a number of the things that Dr. Garber said flew over people at Mach 15. And I feel it'd be very, very important, um, educational, I, I believe edifying, for us to take what we heard and break it down and get a clearer sense um, of what actually took place there. Um, again, folks, from my perspective, this is in a category of who would have thunk it. Um, because particularly for us who are Jewish believers, um, in lots of ways we have lived through desert years. Um, commitment to Yeshua, for us who are Jews, means that there's a steep price that has to be paid. Now, I'm, I'm well aware, folks, that we're not alone, that other folks who are not Jewish, when they make a commitment to Yeshua, also have to uh, pay a significant price. I'm well aware of it, particularly uh, in the Muslim world. Uh, the stories that have come out are horrific. But here in the United States, um, we quetch, we complain uh, about the supposed imminent persecution of believers. And uh, my response is, you have absolutely no clue what persecution looks like. For which I want to say, thank you, God. But again, um, for us who are Jewish, following Yeshua meant embracing him at the same time being rejected by the larger Jewish community. And it's a price we have learned to pay because the Lord is so precious that he is precious about everything else. However, I'm not going to stand here and lie to you and tell you that it didn't feel good. In fact, beyond good, it felt wonderful uh, to be able to interact with this fellow. Um, and I'm seeing more and more of this kind of thing happening. Uh, the beginning of our ministry, if you were there, excuse me, um, you, you, if you were there uh, Monday night, you may remember that I, I quoted someone who talked to me at an Israel uh, support Israel function who said to me, you're worse than Hitler. Hitler tried to kill us physically. You're trying to kill us spiritually. And I'm seeing less and less and less of that. I know it's there, but I'm seeing more and more of fellow Jews who are 
embracing us as part of the larger mishpacha. And a big chunk of it, folks, is the huge and passionate support that Israel and the Jewish community have been receiving from fellow believers, Gentile believers from the evangelical community. Um, so God has been bringing us out of the desert. And it's my deep conviction that it is not God's will for his children to live perpetually in the desert. As I read scripture, the pattern that emerges for me is that God either allows or else he brings us into the desert to accomplish very specific tasks that cannot be done elsewhere. Now, I'm not going to stand here and lie. I don't think any of us, let me rephrase that, not many of us like the desert. Uh, it's a place of lack. We don't have much water. We don't have much food. Uh, we're off the beaten path. And yet, being in a desert means that we're forced to listen because the noise that we're barraged with, the sensory overload that we're barraged with, is minimized. And furthermore, because we're lacking something, we recognize more fully, more vividly, our need to depend on God. So we learn to cry out in desperation. We learn to seek him with urgency. But also, to be honest, folks, it's one reason we don't like the desert. Um, because we don't particularly want to have to depend on God. Call it for what it is, folks. We would rather be able to take care of business on our own and without feeling that we have to depend on God. Because having to depend on God uh, includes the W word, the weight. But having said all that, again, the word of God gives us a pattern that sooner or later God brings his people out of the desert. And so, as was the case with David, so it is with us when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. And if you've been reading the bulletin and the prayer focus, you know that a bunch of our folks have been going through some real tough times. Um, and we span, uh, stand together as a mishpacha, we support each other, we pray for each other. But again, being in a desert is no fun. And so I found it especially intriguing that here you have David, King David, in the Judean desert, one of the hottest, driest places in Israel. And by the way, Israel has more than its fair share of deserts. I mean, about two-thirds of the country is desert, the Negev. And um, as you read David's story, you'll find out 
that there's, there are references to desert about 11 times in this story from the time that he is anointed as king by Samuel until he actually gets to sit on the throne as a king. Again and again, it mentions the fact that he is in a desert. He's in the desert of Ziph. He's in the desert of Maon. He's a desert of uh, En Gedi. And this particular desert is definitely not a picnic because he uses three different phrases to describe how uncomfortable that particular desert was. It was a dry land. It was a weary or faint land, which probably means that after a while you start, your energy starts to, to get sapped and you're drained. And then if we didn't get it the first couple times, he says where there is, when there is no, where there is no water. So you can argue that being in a desert for David had become second nature. Um, because as we do the math and we don't exactly know how long David was being chased from pillar to post, possibly 10 years. Uh, again, we usually think of David as, as a teenager, but the, the scripture uh, references describe David as someone who was a fighting man, which means he was probably a young fellow, possibly in, in his 20s. And he was crowned when he was 30. So roughly about 10 years that he is running away from, from Saul. And if, if you re remember the description of, of life for him, it, it was pretty nuts. You know, here he's sitting with his father-in-law strumming his guitar. Well, not quite his guitar. And uh, his psychotic father-in-law pitches a fork and barely misses him. And this wasn't just once. You can imagine, folks, what that does to your brain. can't speak for you. I can speak for myself. And yet, here David is in, in a very difficult environment, desert environment. And we, again, we, we don't see Scripture glorifying the situation. Um, we, don't say, we don't see David somehow saying, God... This place is hot and dry and I'm weary, but somehow you're sending angels and, and they're sending two or three water bottles each and every day. As was the case with Elijah. It was hot, it was dry, he was thirsty. But what David says is, first and foremost, I'm thirsty for God. Now, either you'd say this guy is Meshuggi, absolutely Meshuggi. He needs to be locked away. Or else, there's something deep, deep in his relationship with God. Uh, sort of like an un under uh, undercurrent of water that sustains him in the middle of difficult situation. My soul thirsts for you. That's, that's what, what's on the screen. 
And in verse 1 he says, oh My God, um, I earnestly seek you. The Hebrew word there has to do with dawn, shachar. In other words, uh, I get up in the morning early, and that's right, right up there at the top of my agenda. Obviously referring to David's passion, David's enthusiasm uh, to hang out with God. And yes, somehow it is a mystery, folks, how it happens. Because obviously it wasn't just David himself, but God was deeply engaged with David. Uh, and, and that is how our relationship with God works. We point our noses in God's direction, and God is more than gracious to reciprocate. In fact, I dare say that he is the one that reaches to us first, and then we respond somehow. And I'm not going to stand here and try to systematize it. God forbid I'll go stark raving mad. Then David refers to, in verse uh, 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and your glory. Again, there's some mystery there because we don't know exactly what circumstances David was referring to um, because there really was no temple at that time. There was a, a, a tabernacle in Shiloh. We don't see a whole lot of references um, to David actually being physically in the tabernacle. But the short version is, for David, God's presence was an ongoing reality. It was the currency by which he lived. And so when he's in a desert, what he does, which by the way is a challenge for all of us to do, is he goes back, he rewinds the tapes and um, to times when he had these special moments with God. Mile markers. Um, and he remembers all the times that he could have been dead. And somehow God reached down and snatched him out of difficult situations. I don't know if any, anyone here can relate to that. I certainly can. In fact, my grandson, he is not here at the moment, said, Grandpa, I know that there are several angels looking out for you. David says, your chesed is better than life. By the way, if you've been here at Yeshuat Zion for any length of time, you will have heard this word over and over and over again because it is a major part of our community value as a mishpacha. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means a number of things. Chesed has to do with a covenant relationship. And that's not something we are prone to think of in our culture. But scripture is full of examples of 
God being in covenant relationship with people. It obviously refers to love. It refers to loyalty. And, and what I like to call the C word, commitment. Um, it refers to compassion. And you see that over and over and over again In the Psalms, in particular, this word chesed appears 130 times. What does that tell you? It tells you that the, the people that wrote the Psalms understood something about how God is compassionate and merciful. and In other words, that God is in love with his people. And that what he expects from us is simply responding to that. Responding to that. Um, and that, folks, is what worship is about. And I'm anticipating the next few weeks diving into this area of worship because I believe that this is an area that we all need to grow in, certainly myself. Particularly when we are in the so-called perfect storms. You know what perfect storms are. Um, where you're dealing with one crisis and you're not quite through with that crisis and a second crisis came and then a third crisis came and the experts tell you that if you go through three crises in a row that that's an absolute recipe for uh, disaster and, and, and you being absolutely mishugi, completely. Short version, folks, is God is greater than the perfect storm. In fact, I stand here to tell you that in the midst of a perfect storm is when we experience the presence of God with greater degree of vividness and reality. And so what we find in Scripture, folks, when it comes to prayer, is yes, we, we find, particularly in the Psalms, the Psalm writer saying, God, I'm, I, I'm about to be consumed by my enemies. The, they're coming like dogs. They're about to bite me and so on and so forth. But at the same time, we find a different kind of model of prayer in which the, the person praying, first of all, begins by saying, God, you are amazing. We see that, for example, with Daniel's prayer, where he is wanting to find out what's happening with his people, why Israel is not back in the land after, se or he thinks, or he knows that seven years are coming. But also, folks, the so-called Lord's Prayer, which people, fellow believers, tend to rattle through at 60 miles an hour without paying any attention to it, that was not designed to give us something that we should pray in those specific words. It was a model, which means Yeshua says, this is how you are to pray according to the pattern I lay out for you. And the pattern, folks, 
is not, God, feed me, God, I need help, but rather, our Father, who is in heaven, you're in control. Hallowed be your name. I know that's old English. What that means is you got to be set apart as kadosh, as special, not a uh, penny anti-God. And as we learn to do that, as we see David doing, then we get to a place where we have the Lord's balance, the Lord's grounding, and perhaps the situations don't immediately change. But we are changed. We are changed because we have a deep, deep, deep conviction that the desert will not last forever, that God will bring us through, that he is able. Why? Because we've seen him do that in the past. So David goes through a number of different forms of worship. He's, he talks about uh, praising God, Shabbat. In other words, saying, God, you're awesome in different ways. He talks about lifting up his hands. By the way, I never knew why Scripture talked about that. Then I realized, I read somewhere that you, you lift up your hands, your hands are empty, and you're waiting for God to fill them. Then there's another phrase in this psalm. Verse 7, because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. Now, Hebrew, as you well know, or you may know, is very graphic, very vivid. Um, and sometimes there are words in Hebrew that need three or four or five or ten or fifteen English words to explain. This particular word, ranan, means to sing with praise. Now, typical translations just say, I will sing your praises, okay? That's sort of like saying that the ocean is full of water. Okay, ranan is to cry out with joy and jubilation loudly. I know some of you more conservative folks might be going, woo! And the point is not the level of decibels. The point is the depth of our expression of thanksgiving. David goes on to say, my soul clings to you. Hebrew word there, davak, has the sense of sticking to God like glue. In other words, pursuing God. And you can't do that if you're in a desert and you're bitter, you're saying, God, how could you let this happen to me? You know, so-and-so is having a good time and I'm here in a desert suffering. Been there, done that. God makes it abundantly clear that he is not thrilled when we do that. My soul clings to you. Now I want to park on, on verse 6 for a moment. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. 
The word there literally has to do with meditation. Now we know because of the New Age mysticism, the word meditation has been co-opted so that believers are afraid to come near the word meditation. You know, when, you know, are, are you saying um, 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 etc.? Biblical meditation is about content. It's not sitting there empty and allowing whatever goofy thoughts come into your brain. It's about content. Meditating about who God is and what He has done in your life and what He has done in other people's lives and what He's going to do in the future. It's feeding your faith. God knows that we all need to have our faith fed and strengthened. So this word for meditate, Haggah, has the sense of studying intensely and reflecting on who God is. Obviously, you need a good book for that. And the short version, folks, is in the midst of difficult circumstances... We're challenged to give God our best. Not leftovers, but our best. And yeah, we all struggle. Make a point of saying at Yeshua Tzion that in our Mishpacha, it's okay to say that we're fellow strugglers. The only one who doesn't struggle is God, and even He has His moments. So part of the process is reflecting back. And God, you are my help. Uh, you have been my help. You've done all these amazing things in the past. I could have been dead or in bad shape. You brought me out of the pit. And furthermore, because of that, I have confidence that you're not done. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. That's in a desert, folks. That requires gutsy faith to say, yes, I'm having a tough time. But I know who God is. I've seen his hand at work. And I have confidence, basic confidence, that he will sustain me and bring me through this desert experience. That's gutsy faith. Because doing that means that we're depending on God to cause us to flourish. The scripture talks about the man or woman who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on a day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Not every day and twice on Sunday, but in its season. Whose leaf doesn't wither. This is Psalm 1, of course. Jeremiah 7, 17. Blessed is the man or woman who trusts in the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by waters 
It sends out its roots by its stream, and its leaves are always green. He never fails to bear fruit. Now, I know that this may sound like prosperity teaching, but it is the right kind of prosperity teaching that is God-focused. Because the Lord expects you and I to bear fruit. That doesn't mean that we sit there and say, I will bear fruit, I will bear fruit. But Yeshua says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to me, my disciples. I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. In other words, if our relationship with God is where it needs to be, if we're learning to praise and worship God in the midst of all kinds of circumstances, if we're learning to trust God despite difficult circumstances, what the Word of God tells us is that we will flourish, perhaps not in the way we expect, but we will definitely flourish. Why? Because it is God's will. It's God's pattern. Not because we need to be shown as cute and clever, but because, folks, the kingdom of God has to advance in us and through us. Has to. It's a must. Which means that we are his vessels, his tools, his mouthpieces. Have to learn to grow. And bear fruit. And depend on God even in desert living. To trust Him. To bring us through that. For us to learn what it is we need to learn. To receive what it is we need to, to receive in desert living. And then to depend on God to bring us into the next place, from the narrow place into a wide place. But in, in either case, it is all about our being connected to divine, deeply connected to God, in, in growing and thriving relationship with Him. And I can tell you, folks, that this has been happening at Yeshua Tzion. And yes, we've had more than our fair share. I shouldn't say more. We've had our fair share of desert living. Um, long periods of time when it seems that we were not growing. Our numbers were small. And you know what happens? You are foolishly given to self-examination and say, well, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to do this. And then we are challenged to see a uh, great wise person over here with the ten great rules for growth uh, and go to, uh, go to some place uh, across the country where there is growth happening and uh, kind of uh, drink from it or you learn to hang in there and depend on God. 
doesn't mean that we should not change, that we should not be receptive to hearing counsel, but not the kind of counsel that says, unless you do this, this, and this, you're going to be in the same place in 70 years. And I've had folks say that. And you know, in the flesh, I wanted to administer the love of God with a swift kick to the tochas. But I realize everybody speaks out of what they have, either the wisdom that God gives them or their foolishness that they have. And the basic reality, folks, is if we are a God plant, something that God has planted, then we will grow. And at some point, God is merciful and he kind of gave me an aha moment or two to realize that despite the externals, the outward appearance, we were growing. We were growing internally in maturity in our relationship with the Lord, in our relationship with each other. And it's not altogether comfortable to say, oh, how are you doing? How are your stats today? <laughs> to which you say, we are growing, but God is growing us inside. And people give you a funny look. And God is faithful, folks. God is faithful. We haven't done anything dramatically different We've endeavored to do what Yeshua tells us, and that is to be faithful. And it's pretty basic. God values faithfulness, folks. Why? Because he's a faithful God. And so he's been teaching us to wait on him. Again, that dirty word, wait And God has been growing us inwardly, and he's been growing us outwardly, and he's bringing folks to Yeshua Zion, to where we have been seriously thinking about, praying about the last couple of years about what would it look like for us to be in a building of our own, a building that has Yeshua Zion on it. That, folks, will come in God's time. And yes, we get impatient sometimes. But if we are God's building, if he is the one who is the master builder, the architect and the master builder, the growth that is essential to bring that about will take place. But more importantly, what has to happen in us inwardly will take place. Individually and corporately, which is why we have endeavored over and over again to avoid anything re remotely resembling fleecing of the sheep. To manipulate and coerce folks into, into giving, A, it's stupid, B, it's ungodly, and more importantly, um, if God has all the resources, do we not think that he can somehow 
manage to bring about the, ne the necessary resources. That's part of the growth God takes us through. The desert experience is essential, folks. Not fun, but it is essential to build us inwardly, to teach us to trust God with gutsy faith, to learn to worship and praise Him in the midst of difficult circumstances, and then watch Him take us to the next level, the next phase of growth. But it's all about Him. So I just want to encourage you, wherever this finds you, to learn to put God on your screen above everything else. Let's pray. Abba Father, we thank and praise you that you are indeed faithful, that you're there when we experience desert experiences. Lord God, when you persevere with us even when we don't persevere, and when our faith is wobbly, you're gracious to strengthen us. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us here. At whatever place your word finds us, we pray for soft hearts, for listening ears, for eagerness, Lord God, to take what your word tells us and embrace it and cleave to you, Lord God, pursue you as we see David is doing here. Receive much honor and glory, we pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen.